Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I'm so glad you could join us here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Within the stresses of daily life, many of us tend to put ourselves last. There are bills to worry about, children to feed and get off to school, community events to run, minion to run to three times a day, and it's rare that people actually get to spend time working on themselves and possibly more important, their relationships with others. Think about the relationships you have in your life, your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, colleagues, your children's friends, parents, and the list goes on and on. It's a wonder we are able to keep our relationships intact at all with all of the other things we worry about in life. But relationships, as we know, in order to succeed, do take a lot of work, especially getting married and marriage itself. This is something the Orthodox Union recognized some years back and in 2009 conducted an international marriage survey in conjunction with the Elenu Family Resource Center of nearly 3,800 couples in the Orthodox community. Their survey found that nearly three-quarters of men and women rated their marriages as very good or better. Only a small minority rated their marriages fair or poor. What then can we do to keep up our relationships, whether they be with a spouse or our children of varying ages, our grown children, our small children? How can we strengthen them? And if we are experiencing conflict, what are the best ways to resolve issues? We'll discuss some of these things and later we'll discuss some unique issues facing our young people out there looking for the very best marriage partner. Here to offer advice and share his expertise, we welcome Rabbi Daniel Schoenbach. Rabbi Schoenbach is a marriage and family therapist currently practicing in New York. He is a former director of the Shalom Task Force and national education director, NCSYOU. He has spoken and written extensively on this topic. He has written a number of books and a number of articles and has um, a new book out and a website at www.jewishmarriagesupport.com, which we will talk about a little bit later. Rabbi Schoenbach, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me ask you, because I mentioned this survey, and um, I steal the title of the survey in asking you my question. Do you think that from couples have happier marriages? Well, according to that OU study that actually came out in 2010, Orthodox couples do tend to have slightly better marriages than the national average. I mean, the, the national divorce rate right now hovers in and around 50%. The OU study reported that about 74% of couples reported back that they have very good marriages. So the Orthodox world is doing quite well. And what do we attribute that to? Well, I think there's uh, several factors. Uh, but I believe our culture and our religion is highly uh, family-focused. Right. So we put a priority on family time. We have a priority in terms of people getting married, and our institutions tend to support uh, marriage and relationships. We have schools. We have community centers. We have synagogues. We have the Yom Tovim. We have eating kosher food together in certain restaurants. There's many things which keep our couples together, and that perhaps is one of the most powerful reasons why Orthodox couples stay together longer than the national average. Right. It's interesting, um, just comparatively speaking, I was thinking about this the other day. 
when I was saying Shema with my children at night. And I'm thinking to myself, this is sort of like a forced good night. It's a forced family good night. Like I, like because I want them to say Shema with each other, you know, with me before they go to sleep, I have to sit down and spend time with them and I have to say good night to them in a very, um, you know, intimate mother child way. And that is bound, you know, within our religion. Uh, very much so. I mean, the halacha comes from the word halach, which means how, how do we go in life? And the Torah prescribes hundreds of things that we do every day. And it's because we have, I would call those 613 responsibilities that permeate all the moments of our lives. We actually stay more on focus because of things that we need to accomplish. Right. What, what then are some of the common problems that you see facing your average Jewish couple today? I know you're very involved in marriage and family therapy. Um, perhaps you see the smaller percentage of the respondents of the survey, which would be that 11 or 13 percent, which rated their marriages as fair or poor. But in general, what are some common issues or problems facing the average Jewish couple today? Well, the biggest problem facing the average Jewish couple today goes down to one word, and that's time. Couples don't have enough time to spend one another. You know, when I give lectures about marriage and relationships, I often just kind of just ask the couples in the audience, how many of you spend more than five or six hours per week just facing each other, talking to one another without any distraction? Right. Almost nobody picks up their hand. Right. I go down to four hours, nobody picks up their hand. I go down to one hour, maybe one or two people pick up their hands. I say, how about 20 minutes a week? How much time do you spend? Is it 20 minutes where you're just talking to your spouse face-to-face without any distractions, which means the cell phones are off, there's no radio, there's no video, there's no distraction, that connection between husband and wife. And most couples would probably report they spend actually very little time actually talking to one another. And one of the big reasons, of course, for that is both husbands and wives are working today. It's expensive to lead, a, to lead an Orthodox life. We have many bills which people in our societies don't have. For example, Jewish day school takes up a great portion of people's salaries today. Right. The need to live in a certain community, the price of kosher food, it's all pushing women specifically, let's say over the last 40, 50 years, into the workforce. So we have a husband and wife that are working they're busy, and you know something? Some people are not just working one job. Some people are working two or three jobs. So there's actually very, very little time, and I believe that's where a lot of marriages stumble. A lot of couples don't seem to make the time necessary to reconnect to their spouse on an ongoing basis. And that's why I recommend in counseling to a lot of families that come to me that they make a date with their spouse, mm-hmm. you know, they need to put on their BlackBerry or on their iPod or, you know, they have to put on their calendar. I'm going to spend Wednesday night between 9 and 11 with my wife or my husband. We're going to go out without distraction and then just connect with one another. I believe, honestly, that if more couples would spend more time, and I mean quality time, we'll talk a bit about later on what they could be talking about, what would improve their communication. But forget about communication. They're not even talking yet. We have to get couples just to talk, and if they would connect and turn towards one another more frequently, I believe there would be much happier marriages out there. Right. That's a very important point, and I do think that uh, perhaps even when you say the TV and the radio, that cell phone has so... Um, you know, come in the way, even when, 
even when I'm talking to my husband and we take the five minutes to, you know, to connect and talk to each other about what's going on, um, you know, he's looking at his phone and the buzz comes in and you have this instant, I need to check that email, I need to check that text, I need to see what's going on. And it is extremely distracting also when you're trying to connect to somebody. Oh, it, it really is. And, you know, often in counseling, I ask people to turn off their cell phones because they're getting messages or, you know, texting people during a session. But it's so important to learn to not be addicted. It's kind of the modern-day addiction that everyone is suffering from, the Internet, and specifically our handy devices, the cell phones with the Internet on them and our text messaging and our emails and the web. It is a tremendous distraction. So people spend much more time worried about their you know, their device than they are their, their spouse. So they need to learn how to say, let's say, let's put down our devices. Let's turn everything off for one hour because you are more important to me than the device, the Internet, and my cell phone company. Right. And even when they say, you know, I can multitask, I can do two things at the same time, it's even just the action of physically putting down your phone is just a very big um, sign, if you will, to your spouse that you are important to me at this moment. Yes, of course, just the fact that you make yourself present in the relationship. And from a more therapeutic perspective, one of the things which all couples seem to struggle with, Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, or not Jewish, and people tend to ask in marriages, is my spouse present? Are they available for me? So 40, 50 years ago, when you had to actually use a physical phone and you had to wait a few hours to get to another phone, you didn't have the, the luxury of the cell phone, people were actually more available and, and present in relationships. Like our grandparents' generation, they spent more time talking and connecting. The fact that people aren't doing that in the modern world has had a tremendous impact on relationships. So the most important thing in a marriage is that your spouse should sense your presence, that your spouse should sense that you are thinking about them and letting them know that you're thinking about them. That's what we call in psychology attachment. Attachment is knowing that your spouse is there for you. But if you have all these other things going on in your life, all the busyness, all the job responsibilities, all the text messages, and the websites you want to check, our spouses are not feeling that we're really there for them, and therefore they don't feel the same attachment they used to 40 or 50 years ago. Right, most definitely, most definitely. So what happens when people butt heads on a certain issue? If there is something comes up, and you know you mentioned it earlier, there are so many con- you know, potential conflicts and issues facing Jewish couples today, especially from couples. Um, I think one of the biggest is about money. You know, she's spending too much. School costs too much. We need to, you know, she's saying we need to make improvements on the house. He's saying we can't afford to make improvements on the house. What What are some of the conflicts that you see people experiencing? Even people who say their marriages are very good experience conflicts. What are some of those conflicts, and what is your suggestion to couples on how to resolve them? Well, one of the things which the OU study also mentions is a disease called affluenza. <laughs> and I don't think there's an inoculation for affluenza, right. but many, many of us really, unfortunately, have it. Um, it's, it was called the Joneses. What do the Jones have across the street? Right. And so we have, you know, a tremendous amount of pressures. And I, and I think over the last five years, people have had to really adjust to, uh, to the pressures. I recently had a couple that came to me that were living a very, you know, high lifestyle, and they were so incredibly stressed out about the husband's business. It wasn't working out well. And they tended to fight a lot about money. So you know something? 
you know, the economy has been down for a few years. Maybe it's time you kind of reevaluate what your expectations are. Right. What did you expect when you got married? Perhaps it's not achievable right now. You have to maybe move to a cheaper location, take a few less vacations, spend a little less money. But it's hard. It's kind of an addiction. Once you're out there making money and doing things, and suddenly you're asked to, like, pull back, it's really, really hard. But then what happens is if you keep up the same expectations, the marriage starts to suffer. So one of the most important things to do for couples that are having trouble with their finances is evaluate, you know, what their expectations of life are and maybe kind of cut down and just focus on the basics as opposed to the excess. So you're almost saying that it might be beneficial in your relationship to almost work on yourself first. I mean, this is something, this is like sort of a self, a, a look at oneself and say, where are my expectations or where do I think I'm going with this, uh, you know, home improvement idea? And I have to look at reality myself. So maybe you could be more successful in your relationship if you work on yourself first. Oh, very much so. And that's an extremely Jewish perspective. I, I often say that if people don't need psychologists. If they just focus on perkeavos, ethics of our fathers, and they work on themselves, they'll have much better life in general. I mean, it says... Ezehu Hashir, who is a rich person, Hasemech Beselko, people that are happy with what they have. So people learning to be happy with what they have already, having re- much more reasonable expectations about what life could provide. In the end, when they work on that internal message that they have enough, it's only a bracha if they have more, tend to be happier, they expect less, and then they tend to fight less for those things as well. Right. I mean, it is such a hard thing to not look at what everybody else has and not look at what, you know, that is, that is probably a huge challenge for people. Oh, definitely. I mean, we're, we're living in a world, we call that disease before affluenza. I mean, the Jewish people are richer today perhaps than any time in history. I, I was recently at a uh, lecture with Dr. David Falkovich from Yeshiva University, and he asked, uh, you know, uh, a middle-aged crowd, um, I bet your parents don't have kitchens like your kitchens today. <laughs> you know, people that are in their 80s today, you know, 60 years ago, 50 years ago, didn't have such wonderful kitchens. But how about people in their 40s and 50s today? Look at all the kitchens that people have. He was kind of joking about it, but to make a point that we've come into a world over the last 30, 40, 50 years of tremendous affluence, access to education, to jobs, and we've really advanced as a nation in general, but we're also suffering from the fact this is too much out there and our eyes are too big. Right. Right. So, so money is probably number one. What, what are some other things that, that people conflict with each other on? How about child rearing? Is that something that you see a lot in your practice? Oh, definitely. You know, it's really um, deceiving sometimes. You know, a couple comes into my practice and they're fighting a lot. And one of the first things I do is to just do like a survey about how about their children? How are their children doing? And the, the reality is, it's hard having children, you yeah. know. Um, it's the most wonderful thing in, in life and the most wonderful opportunity in the world to raise, to have children, to raise children. But there's a tremendous amount of stress that goes along with having children. In fact, if you, I can point back to the OU uh, marriage survey 2010. They did, a, they did some interesting statistics where they uncovered that the first two years of marriage, around that amount of time, couples reported a higher level of satisfaction. But after two years or so, it goes down quite a bit, and it stays down for about 20 years. But if the couple stays through the relationship after 20, 30 years, they not only emerge as happy as they were during the first years of marriage, 
they emerged even happier. But let me just ask you, what do you think happens approximately after two years of marriage? Why does satisfaction right. go down a bit? So that's and what, the answer is children. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, and even those questions that you ask each other when you're dating, you know, what kind of school would you want to send your kids to? What kind of community would you want to live in? None of it is actually reality until you're living it. So even, oh, that, you know, yeah. as you're going through, let's say even the first two years, there's still so much that couples don't know about each other. And you know, even things that you didn't even think about when you were single, about how you would handle um, your child not going to sleep on time or how you would handle a conflict that your child's having with another child. These are things that you discover about your spouse as life goes on. Oh, for sure. There, there's major, major changes take place when a couple has, you know, one child, let alone m- many children. I mean, they can't uh, do what they wanted to do. They don't have as much independence. Um, as you mentioned, like putting, you know, you used to go to sleep whenever you wanted. Now you have to put your kids down six, seven, or eight o'clock, or even later. But there's a tremendous amount of, you know, responsibilities, responsibilities that come along with child rearing, and it makes it hard in the relationship because as you have larger and larger families. Um, there's less and less time for one another. So as I mentioned before, when a couple comes in, I want to find out um, how are their kids doing? What type of issues are they having with their children? Now, the national statistics are that, let's say, one in six kids, uh, boys primarily, have ADHD. Mm-hmm. So I see families where one child has a, uh, an attention disorder. And then, you know, one of every four or five kids has a learning disability. So most likely when a couple comes into me and they have a larger family, one or two of the kids have some learning disabilities, maybe one child has some form of ADHD. When you enter that into the mix of issues that the couple is dealing with, it becomes exponentially more difficult to raise the child or the children, and it puts a lot more pressure on the parents, Not a, let, let alone the tuition that they have to pay as the children get older, just the educational issues, the demand for homework, uh, discipline, um, guiding your child's children to go in the right direction takes a lot of energy, and therefore the couple starts spending less time connecting to one another. But sometimes I find couples are fighting, but deep down inside what they're really fighting is about the children as well. Right. And people are tired. You know, people, like you said, it's just so much energy. People are, are exhausted. And it, it takes a lot of, you know, we talked before about working on yourself. It takes a lot of Uh, self-energy to push yourself to even to talk nicely or even to not take it out on your spouse when you're annoyed, you know, with something that your child is going through. Uh, Very much so, and that's why it's very important for people to spend time to renew themselves as well. And as you mentioned before, you know, self-care, working on oneself, taking care of oneself is extremely important. But that's just adding another responsibility, right? So one important uh, principle is for couples to spend some time together face-to-face talking. Mm-hmm. Another part of having a healthy marriage and have a healthy family is each individual taking time to renew oneself. And that's primarily, let's say, exercise, taking an exercise class, um, going to a shear once or twice a week, connecting to other people. People have to spend time doing things to renew themselves because when they do that well, they have more energy when it comes to their marriage and for raising their children. Do couples sometimes over-dramatize what's going on in their lives? Take, they take one instance uh, well, and they blow it out of proportion. You know, they, a couple disagrees on something uh, with, you know, in relation to their child. And, uh, you know, one one spouse says, well, you know, we obviously have different ideas on how to raise our kids and therefore this isn't going to work. 
Well, that's that's a good point. I mean, uh, couples, what I find, do trend, tend to dramatize where they are and what they're suffering through. Yeah, a lot of um, young couples I counsel have difficulty after, let's say, two children, mm-hmm. and they start realizing that it's it's much more than they expected. Right. Uh, their financial uh, demands have gone up. The stress, the lack of sleep, has increased dramatically. Right. And you know, sometimes they really need to learn that they're just going through a period in their lives. Some of the couples I've worked with, they're realizing a lot of difficulty. I said, stick with it. It's going to get better. Here are some of the skills I can teach you to have more, a more successful and more happy relationship. If you stick through with this, I promise you, as much as I can promise anybody, if you stick with the plan, things will get better over time. You don't have to react as much. You will need to realize that you'll be experiencing a little more stress right now. It might be uncomfortable. It might be harder for you right now, but if you stick through it, things most likely do get better in life. Yeah, I mean, Baruch Hashem, I, I, my husband and I have five children, and we know people, you know, cousins and friends who, let's say, have two small children. And, you know, sometimes people say, like, oh, what is she fetching about? She only has two kids. I have five. But in retrospect, looking back on that time, I do think that that was harder than what we're going through now. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you look back in retrospect, what we all experienced when we got married, and if we only knew then what we know now, right. we have a much easier time with it. But now, you know, we've gone on in life and we've developed new strengths and have uh, new insights that we can share with others around us as well. Right. Rabbi Schoenbach, is it important for people to talk about these potential things before they get married? You know, the same way that people test for genetic diseases or the same, is it important for people, I know now they do like a resume, um, you know, what you call pre-marriage education? Well, you know, I like how you connected pre-marriage education with something like Doria Sharon, <laughs> like, you know, genetic Did testing. you think that was a stretch? Uh-huh. I know. It's, not, it's more than a stretch. I think you're right on. I, I feel that couples, uh, of course, most couples, almost every couple today goes through that Doria Sharon test. They also have to go for a pre-marriage educational program. Mm-hmm. And if they don't do a pre-marriage educational program, they have to do a post or not a post-marriage, a marriage educational program. And let me tell you why. You see, life, as we've been talking about the last half an hour, is quite challenging. Uh, there's a lot of stresses. In our, in our world today, in our jobs, and there's a lot, very little time for one another. So couples, on top of that, didn't necessarily learn healthy communication skills right. in their homes. Right. Unless they're extremely, extremely lucky that their parents were well-adjusted, emotionally stable, extremely loving, caring, and empathetic, which hopefully many parents are, but for those who didn't come from those types of families, every single couple today needs, just as they do the Doria Sharm before they get married, they need to learn how to have better relationship skills in marriage. Now, the statistics are already out there. This whole marriage education world has been around for about the last uh, 40 years. There's many different programs, pairs, prep, uh, prepare, all types of marriage educational programs. What the statistics have showed very clearly and scientifically, as couples that get pre-marriage or marriage education statistically have better relationships. And why is that? Because they learn some of those basic skills on how to communicate better that they didn't necessarily learn beforehand. And even if they had the skills, they didn't know how to apply them and utilize them. But now when they take these courses, most marriages could get much better.
In fact, I found out that about, let's say, 40 to 50% of the couples I see that are having problems or in distress are having them because they didn't have enough marriage education. They didn't learn the skills needed to be, to be married and to be successfully married. The other 30% have some instabilities, mental illness or so on, and there's other problems. But a lot of the couples out there just don't have the right marriage tools to have successful relationships, and that's why they're suffering. How strong is the connection between the kind of married person that you are to, as you mentioned earlier, what you saw at home? Well, it's, you know, according to most psychologists, your upbringing has a tremendous impact on who you are um, as an individual. So, you know, look, look at the national statistics. Um, in, the, in, the, in the secular world, there's a 50% divorce rate. Mm-hmm. So 50% of the people out there um, have come from where their parents were broken marriages. They're raised by a single parent. That's one difficult thing they're going through. Second of all is each family has their own style of communication. Um, some families don't allow the expression of affection, right? right? Some families are uncomfortable with a lot of closeness, and some families don't do a lot of active listening to their children. Right. Let's say you come from a family where the father's extremely busy, uh, never home, and the mother is raising the children. She's all alone. She's always upset that her husband's not home enough for her. She's kind of raising the kids by herself. She's really overwhelmed. And when you see your mother and father go through that, they tend to, like, fight a lot when they're together. So you kind of pick up uh, certain messages about, you know, how couples connect and how couples don't connect or how they detach from one another. And people tend to just kind of mimic the things they learned when they were children. And that's why in marriage counseling, one of the things I do with couples when necessary is go back and look at their family of origin and see, are they repeating some of those patterns over and over again? If they are, as an adult, you need to take a look at themselves and analyze when they do that and why they're doing that and make some subtle changes to not repeat some of the mistakes that their parents made. And often they can have much more successful relationships when they do so. How real should couples be in front of their kids? Do you believe in, in you know, let's smile in front of the children if we have to have a fight, let's go in the other room? Well, you know, um, it's, it's kind of a mix. You, you have to be careful with the children not to overwhelm them with too much emotional intensity, which is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So often I do tell couples, if you want to disagree about something and fight over it, you know, you definitely want to do it in the bedroom, not in the living room, right. in front of the children. But besides that, there's room for normal expression. People can get upset. People can cry. People can be very loving and affectionate with one another. These are all healthy and normal things in relationships. You don't have to protect your kids from all emotions. But I would say when they're more mature topics discussed and more intense emotions being released, it's best done between father and mother and not to expose the children too much to that. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's important for kids to see their parents fight and then resolve the conflict. You know, to say we can still have a very strong relationship and still love each other and have a fight and then come out of this fight, you know, even stronger, even better. And we can make up just like we tell you, you know, just like we tell our kids to do when they fight with their friends. Oh, I I think you're right. As long as the the couple or the parents in this case know how to fight with one another. You know, there's a very famous marriage researcher named John Gottman. He's done a lot of training of Orthodox therapists over the last few years. And he wrote a book called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And one of the things he says about marriage is, a good marriage does not mean couples never fight. 
It's just not true. Healthy, happy couples fight. But they shouldn't fight too much. They just can fight sometimes about something. Right. But Gottman says it's not about if you fight or not. It's about how you fight. Mm -hmm. And he, he cautions couples to be very careful about how they fight. Not too much criticism. Don't build up too much contempt for one another. Um, don't degrade one another. So as long as you kind of avoid what he calls the four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse, um, then you could still fight, but you fight in a, best, a much more healthy way, and the children want to take place as you resolve it, and you are correct. Kids can learn from your problem, uh, your problem-solving skills as well if it's done right. Right. Very well said. We are talking with Rabbi Daniel Schoenbach, a marriage and family therapist, and we're going to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to find out if therapy works. We're going to find out if opposites attract and um, if people are coming to therapy when it potentially, possibly might be too late. More with something to talk about right after this. Shmor al-Aulam Yelet Ki an 
Shmar al-Aulam, a beautiful selection by David Daor, as we talk about family and relationships. Welcome back to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I'm sitting here with Rabbi Daniel Schoenbach. Rabbi Schoenbach is a marriage and family therapist practicing in New York. He's a national speaker on marriage and parenting issues. He's the former director of the Shalom Task Force and the national education director, NCSYOU. And um, Rabbi Schoenbach has written extensively on this topic, including a just-released book called Getting Closer, Understanding and Treating Issues, Understanding and Treating Issues in Marital Intimacy, A Guide for Orthodox Couples, edited by two leading physician, physicians and endorsed by Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch, one Reb Executive Director of the OU. Rabbi Schoenbach, we were talking about therapy. And so now I want to ask you, does therapy work? Um, well, that's really an interesting question. Let me give you the uh, statistics on therapy. It's often said that, you know, 30% of your clients get better, 30% uh, stay the same, and 30% get worse. So I would say that it depends on, again, the therapist you're going to. That's kind of the average in all counseling psychology. But I was lucky enough to train in something called emotionally focused therapy with a world-famous therapist named Professor Sue Johnson from Ottawa, Canada. And emotionally focused therapy has been very well studied for couples, and it's found to be about 70 to 80 percent successful with couples. So therefore, it depends, you know, who you go to, what modality do they use. For sure, I can tell you that you have to go to somebody who's well-trained in marriage therapy if you want real Results. People that are trained in individual psychology are not necessarily aware of some of the couple's dynamics and don't necessarily have the education to help couples. Therefore, I find it extremely important that if a person has a marriage program, try to visit an orthodox or even non-orthodox marriage and family therapist, someone who's really trained in marriage dynamics to really help the marriage uh, progress. How bad does it need to be? before you decide to go for therapy. I feel like that word therapy uh, can be, people view it as stigmatizing. You know, it's a private thing. It's not something that people talk about. It's not something that people share. Um, How bad does it need to be, or does it not to be bad at all, just to get a few tips? Well, as I mentioned before, um, there's nothing like prevention. And I would say to you like this, that Every couple today needs to take a marriage educational program, right. whether they're engaged or they're actually married. So, so many couples would actually be helped before they get to the stage of crisis when they need to come into a marriage therapist. Now, when people come to me and they've been fighting for three or four years with very, very serious problems that are unresolved, there's a lot of tension, uh, a lot of anger in the relationship. It's really hard for any therapist then to repair many years of damage. Therefore, I would say, of course, people shouldn't overreact to smaller issues. However, when it becomes, let's say, a kind of moderate issue, which is going on for a while, it's extremely important for them to reach out to a therapist, I believe, earlier than later. Because the statistics also say if you go in earlier and work things out, it predicts a much greater level of success. If they wait till things are just out of control, it's much harder for any therapist or the therapeutic process to be successful. So it shouldn't be something that people are afraid of. It shouldn't be something that people say, oh, things are so bad, we're in therapy. Oh, not at all. I think most couples just need a little bit of help. 
a little bit of guidance, a little bit of perspective. And, and I really think that uh, couples that reach out for, for help early on, it's a sign of tremendous emotional strength. You know, we have a problem. We want to make it better. And let's go to talk to somebody that has the skills and knowledge base to help us make our relationship better. I mean, just apply this whole model to what happens in real life. Let's say a business isn't doing well. Let's say the economy changes for the last five years and, and there's less products available in the market and you have to make certain changes in your business to be more successful. Do you think a business owner should be embarrassed bringing in a consultant? The answer is no. So look at a marriage, so to speak, as, as a business. I mean, it's like a family business that has to keep going. You have to have funds coming in. You have to have a good relationship between the employees. And sometimes you need a consultant to take a little bit of an objective look and say, hey, perhaps you're not seeing this. Or, oh, here's a better way to support one another. Or maybe you guys need to spend a little more quality time during the week together. And here's some communication skills which can make that relationship much more enjoyable. And if a couple does it early enough and has strong emotional skills, they can often overcome almost anything they're facing in life. Right. And just touching upon something that you just said, it is actually also time that they are spending together without any other distractions. So, you know, earlier we spoke about the cell phone being a distraction or, you know, whatever else is going on now making time. The fact that you are together going to spend some time talking about each other and talking to each other, talking about your marriage, talking about your family, uh, could be beneficial in and of itself. Oh, it very is. I just caution couples not to make that their, their only time when they hang out with one another <laughs> in my office. Right, right. So as long as they do that once in a while and spend another time that week going out, I think they're doing the right thing. I imagine that in your practice and through all the research that you've done, you've met a vast variety of married couples. And when you look at couples together, do, do you look at, do, do you think that opposites attract? Do you think it's better to marry someone who's like you? And, and perhaps this discussion could segue into our discussion about uh, people who are currently what we call in the shidduch scene, people who are currently looking for a spouse. Uh, should they look for somebody who is like them or somebody who is opposite them? Well, that's a really interesting question that a lot of people often wonder about. I found from experience that um, similarities are better than significant differences. So it wouldn't be the best thing to look for somebody totally opposite. Mm -hmm. You want to find a person with, you know, commonality. So the closer I think, the better. However, let me point out, point out something that John Gottman points out. Healthy marriages are not predicated upon people being the exact same and having the exact same likes and dislikes. For example, let's say he loves skiing, and then she also loves skiing. Well, if it's true that you have to marry somebody just like yourself, then these two skiers should get married. But Gottman just basically says it's not that you both like skiing. It's how you talk when you're skiing. <laughs> Imagine that same couple going down the hill together in a fancy ski resort in Colorado, but they're fighting each other when they're going down the hill. Right. So, of or competing with each other. Both like skiing doesn't predict happiness. It's how you can utilize good communication skills and accept differences in the relationship, which predict a healthier relationship. However, at the same side, it's also wise to try to look for somebody a little bit more similar to yourself so you have some of the common likes and dislikes as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that commonality is a, a big challenge to um, 
people who, single people who haven't yet found their spouse, that a lot of people who try to set them up say, well, you know, she's, um, you know, she likes red, he likes red, let's set them up. So I think that that, you know, in common thing, that commonality thing can be, you know, very deceiving. Yes. You have to look out for when people just suggest, oh, you're Jewish, she's Jewish, I think it's a good match, and you're, you know, you're the similar age and whatever, but there's a lot more to compatibility than some of those what I call, you know, external similarities. However, I'm also finding out in the single scene that there's a phenomenon which is growing that many, many more uh, young Orthodox singles are staying uh, single for a much longer period of time. And I I have counseled a significant amount of young men and women in their later 20s and even early 30s uh, that are staying outside, staying out in that pool of the single pool uh, for a very extended period of time because they just don't want to settle. They don't want to make a choice. Uh, their expectations of relationships may be just too high, and therefore they're staying single for, for too long. So on the one hand, uh, you know, they need to find somebody who is, compatible in as many ways possible, but they have to have a list of preferences, preference A, preference B, preference C. For example, what do I tell singles? Make the ABC list. I prefer, let's say, a young woman 25. So her preference is she marries a guy, you know, 25 to 27. That's preference A. But 20, preference B could be 27 to 28, and preference C could be 29 to 30. You have to look at all these desires people have and put them in order of preference. And when they do that on my board and my office or do that by themselves, they can then have a kind of like um, a roadmap to, to now evaluate, hey, he might not be exactly what I'm looking for, but, you know, I would prefer A. He might be a B, but, you know, he's got enough of the A's and some of the B's it's worth moving towards. The problem is when somebody stays extremely rigid, and thinking they have to get exactly what they expected, they often find themselves to be disappointed and single for longer than necessary. Right, and I would imagine that at the end of the day, some of these um, people that you've met with who did write their choice A, choice B, end up marrying somebody that's not on their list at all. Oh, of course. There's all types of gems out there that um, you know you don't realize you're in front of a gem. And when you kind of modify your expectations and look for those positive qualities um, and look deeply for those positive qualities, you may be actually surprised you find something that you didn't expect. That in mind, I'd like to just mention, you of course have to be careful about certain red signals in relationships. And I talk to singles about this as well. Um, Of course, avoiding uh, somebody who's abusive is kind of obvious to some, but not obvious to others. Some of the signs for looking into abusive behavior are things like anger management. If you're out on a date with somebody and they have like either what we call road rage or get very angry at a waiter or kind of highly reactive to people around them, you have to be careful because it's often a sign of a potentially controlling or an abusive person. This is for both men and for women. So people have to look at some of those danger signals. If, for example, one of the people that you're dating has significant uh, mental illness, whether it's a bipolar disorder or suffers from serious depression. These are also things one has to look into very carefully, not to jump into thinking that love conquers all. So it's important at the same time to be flexible, 
but to look out for certain red signs as well. Do people sometimes ignore those so-called danger signals because there's something else about the person that they really like or in general the person fits their mold? So despite that, yeah, um, that person may have, you know, my date may have yelled at the waitress in a very disrespectful way. Do you find that some people just ignore those danger signals and say, okay, I'm going to go into this relationship knowing that this is, you know, a chisaron, and I'm going to work with it? Well, it's not only what I find. It's what some of the biggest psychologists in psychiatry history have noted this. There's a form of marriage therapy called imago therapy. Now, I've studied something called emotionally focused, but there's mm-hmm. another very strong form of marriage counseling called imago. And one of the things they do with Imago couples is they ask them to think about the best and worst qualities of their parents. Mm-hmm. Because often uh, there's something called repetition compulsion. People unconsciously tend to pick the best and worst qualities of their parents and marry the same image, or Imago, as they mentioned. So sometimes, and this will explain why, why is it that a woman, who a young woman whose father was an alcoholic and abusive, ends up marrying a man who's abusive and an alcoholic, wouldn't they just avoid that at all costs? And it happens a lot. People tend to marry similar things to their family of origin. And the reason is because it's something called repetition compulsion. People tend to marry what they're used to. So part of them likes it, part of them dislikes it. They tend to choose their partner based upon this repetition compulsion, things they didn't like from their childhood. They tend to marry the same thing. But now as an adult, they think they can control it and they can change it, and they find that they can't. So it is very important for people to think carefully about their family background, and if they were, for example, coming from an abusive family or had a very controlling parent, be careful not to be attracted to a very controlling person because unconsciously they may be you know, uh, suffering terribly from the fear of that anger and try to avoid that and do the same thing with their partner. You have to be very careful sometimes, especially in counseling, to help people understand that they often marry a projection of their unconscious fantasies, and they end up fighting with it for years. So they have to be careful with that as well. Wow. That's such an excellent point. And and what do you say to people who, you know, speaking of their parents, what do you say to young people looking to get married whose parents are too involved in their Shidduch looking. Well, according to marriage and family therapy principles, um, there's two relationships which are unhealthy. Relationships which are either too close or relationships which are too far. Mm-hmm. So some families tend to be fused or enmeshed with their children. Other families tend to be very distant. Now, according to a very famous psychiatrist in the world of marriage and family therapy, Murray Bowen, he says what's healthy is to be right in the middle. In other words, a person should strive not to be too close and at the same time not to be too far. So as with everything, parents and their grown children have to strike a balance. Parents and their grown children need to set boundaries. Mm -hmm. So parents should not either get too close or too enmeshed with their children or too distant from them, and the children as well. So therefore, when they're dating, it's important for parents to respect the child's boundaries, but not to abandon them. So when you see a situation where the parents are too involved, uh, let's say I have a young couple come to my office and somebody finds their father and mother-in-law highly invasive, intrusive, overbearing, and, and unwilling to have a pleasant relationship. 
I often have a couple draw an imaginary circle around themselves. And I say, you guys are the most important relationship. Mm-hmm. Your marriage will succeed or fail based upon what you guys do. You're the priority. So I have them focus on the priority and to try to loosen some of the intensity with their family members because often it's inappropriate and destructive. I think also you could use that as a teachable moment to say to the couple, let's remember how you're feeling right now. And when you're that in-law, don't behave like that. Yeah, that would be a very good strategy for sure. For sure. I hope that would definitely work. How do you counsel people who might be unrealistic about their expectations of their potential spouse? Well, that's a really good good point. Um, I have a technique when I'm counseling couples is I'll turn to one person who's always complaining about their spouse. I'll say, but, you know, they're just a human being, right? Because what happens is we forget that what we marry is just another human being. And often what happens is when somebody gets married and it's in the home, they start having these over-realistic ex- expectations of, you know, what their partner is or what they could be, or what they're supposed to provide. You're just marrying another human being with their strengths and their weaknesses. So it's very important not to project too much demand on the other person, but work towards a kind of mutuality where you respect who the other person is, recognize their strengths and weaknesses, and support them when they're weak, and give to them when they need your affection as well. So it's very important to kind of balance that out and to lower some of those expectations. You cannot get married thinking that your spouse is just there to make you happy. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned before, the only person that can make you ultimately happy is yourself. Right. Of course you have to marry somebody who's loving and giving, but they can't be loving and giving all the time. They're also going to be stressed. They're also going to be overwhelmed. They're going to have problems from their family of origin. They're going to have stress in their job and not be able to be home on time as much as you expected. You have to accept the full person and to lower your expectations. And the most important thing really is that I want to mention in terms of marriage counseling is communication. When you don't have your needs met, it's important to utilize a principle called I messages versus you messages. One of the places where people stumble in relationships is to use something called you messages. You meaning Y-O-U. If you use a message like, you're always late, or you're always to blame, what happens when you say to you that there's something wrong with you, the other person most likely feels attacked, down, right. gets defensive, withdraw, or to hit back. And then you have this whole vicious cycle taking place. I often uh, counsel couples to use what we call I messages, the letter I. An I message, instead of you're always late, would be, it's very hard for me when we're late. I feel embarrassed when I show up at a, at a function late. Right. Um, you know, you don't care about me is a you message. A better I message is sometimes I feel alone and unloved or rejected. So I really coach most couples to start using what we call I messages. And it's very, very powerful. When you um, become a little bit more vulnerable, when you begin to express what you're feeling, what you're feeling like inside. And, you know, people have basic feelings about life, uh, disappointments in relationships. Sometimes people feel rejected. They feel alone. 
They feel they don't measure up to their spouse's expectations. They feel like they're a failure. They feel like they're unlovable and so on. It's very, very powerful when a person stops and says, you know, I'm feeling all alone right now. Right. So when you use an I message, I'm feeling alone, your spouse will not really most likely attack back. They'll be a bit surprised. They'll be less defensive. And then you coach the other spouse to validate and say, oh, you're really feeling alone, right? I hear that. I'm here for you. So what I do with couples is shift towards the I messages as opposed to you messages, and each side then validates what the other one is experiencing. And would it be important, let's say, when you are in conflict with your spouse to say, when I'm feeling like this and I'm shouting like this, I need you to blank. Whatever it is that you're hoping that they're going to figure out on their own, you realize after experience in conflict that they're not figuring out what you need at that time. Would it be important to just be direct and say, when I'm like this, I need you to do this? Well, that's really a, a really insightful and great point. Um, often we assume that our spouse knows what we need. Now, what happens in a relationship often, especially according to my brand of therapy called emotionally focused therapy, as a person might have prime emotions, they may feel alone. Uh, they may feel like they're a failure. But what they tend to do is not to express that clearly towards their spouse. They tend to get angry you know, and say things, you don't care about me. Instead of teaching their spouse that they're going through this vulnerable moment, and it would be so important to me if you spend some more time talking to me. I would really appreciate if when I get upset, you could just kind of listen to me. I promise you it's not about you. Sometimes it's something that I'm experiencing, I'm going through. Sometimes I just need your undivided attention, or I need you to hold me tight because I'm going through this very vulnerable moment. And so when you do that effectively, you talk about your primal emotion and you communicate to your spouse how they can support you to feel more attached or more safe and secure, that is a tremendous road to success. Right. That is a, a, an excellent point as well. Well, Rabbi Schoenbach, thank you for joining us today and discussing some of these very important issues that many of us face daily or will face eventually at some point in our lives um, in all of the relationships that, that we engage in. And uh, to our listening audience, we hope that today we've given you something to think about and something to talk about right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Let's continue the discussion online. If you have questions or comments about today's program, email me at randy at nachamsegel.com. That's R-A-N-D-I at nachamsegel.com. And you can visit jewishmarriagesupport.com for more information about Rabbi Schoenbach and his work. Thanks again for joining us right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Let's give them something to talk about.